We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 117. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talked to Sean Field of Notre Dame about his research into the Chocolin Road Network. Let's get to it. All right. As I said in the introduction, we are interviewing Sean Field. He is a doctoral student at the University of Notre Dame. Sean is a geospatial archaeologist that focuses on Chaco and Mesa Verde regions of the American Southwest. His research interests include interaction, settlement, and climate variability. The paper we'll be discussing is linked in the show notes, and it's called a Least Cost Analysis Correlative Modeling of the Chaco Regional Road System. And again, you can find that link in the show notes. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. And Paul, how are you doing on this Thanksgiving day? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing today? Stuffed yet? Good, good. I, I know, I know, I know. It's actually kind of funny talking about that because I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit. We're recording a week and a half before Thanksgiving. <laughs> I am stuffed. But I am, but I'm also stuffed. Yeah, yeah I actually well, I'm practicing. just had lunch. <laughs> Nice. Well, hopefully everyone is uh, is enjoying family time. Chances are, if you're listening to this on Thanksgiving Day, you're you're sick of family and you're listening to our podcast instead. But we'll hope that uh, hope that it all works out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we have a fantastic guest today. Uh, his name is Sean Field, as I read in the bio and the introduction. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, you brought my memory back, you know, because we're going to talk about Chaco Canyon and the and the Chaco road system and uh, and go down some go down some areas like that. But man, I saw Ch- I got a chance to work near Chaco Canyon on a CRM project probably five, six years ago and or oh, more actually, awesome. I think more than that. Yeah, we were actually staying in this like branch uh, townhouse. We weren't working anywhere with the Chaco Canyon stuff, but it could have been a Chaco and outlier, I guess. Um, right. But then during our days off, my wife and I, we would just like for the first, I think three or four sessions of days off, we just went to Chaco Canyon and did some of the hikes up to like uh, Pueblo Benito, Pueblo Alto, of course, um, uh, Pueblo Pinasca Blanca, I think it's called. Yeah, um, Pinasca Blanco. That's a great. Yeah, isn't it though? Saw the supernova petroglyph and all that other, or pictograph. And uh, it was just a, a good time. So thanks for thanks for bringing all that back. <laughs> yeah, no, pro- no problem. Glad I can help. Yeah. So why don't you just give us a, give us an overview of what we're going to talk about here, what you were studying over at Chaco Canyon, then we'll go from there. Yeah. So Chaco roads are really like an integral part of whatever we're talking about when we're looking at the archaeology of Chaco, right? And so when people are talking about Chaco, it's, you know, it captures the imagination. And a lot of archaeologists like Steve Lexon have done a great job of talking about, you know, it really is different than what we see in a lot of the ancestral Pueblo world, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's not only the big, great houses in the canyon, but it's also the system, if you want to use that word, similar style architectural complexes that are scattered throughout an area as large as Ireland, right? And so mm. a big question is, how do all of those sites relate to each other? And why do we see such a similar tradition being practiced across such a large area, right? So what mechanisms are controlling those shared Uh, architectural traditions, at least, if not ceramic traditions and other more social traditions beyond what we see in the archaeological record. So to kind of answer that question, or or one way to get at it is to look at Chaco roads, which are these really kind of interesting and complex components of the archaeological landscape. They're these super wide, 
like linear features, the depressions mm-hmm. basically that can go on for tens of miles in, in full continuous segments. And they radiate out from the canyon. And there's at least five or six, if not more, large regional roads, uh, which go supposedly connect Chaco Canyon with kind of the outlier system that's 60 plus kilometers mm. in distance from the canyon. So people have been, ever since you know archaeologists started using aerial imagery, and this is really actually aerial observation. They were up in planes and, and getting aerial photographs. You can see them very well from there, whereas it's hard to see roads from the, the ground surface. But ever since they started using those data in the late 70s, Chaco roads became a really important component of understanding Chaco system. Mm-hmm. And so they developed a lot of really cool data and maps about these things, but it's really hard to figure out what they were actually used for. So when GIS and, and computational analyses became popular, some people like John Kantner started to do research about using least cost analyses to figure out why people might be using roads at a time when they weren't using beast of burden, they didn't have wheels, there wasn't, you know, things that you would traditionally associate to people using large roads for. And so least cost analysis is a way to basically say, how can we model how people are moving optimally in a landscape? Hmm. Um, and I took that, paired it with roads to figure out, um, you know, where were roads being used um, as optimal pathways for the economic movement of specific items or resources. What do these uh, roads look like on the ground? How do you identify them, not from a satellite image, but uh, if you were to be walking across the landscape, what would they appear like? If you're lucky and you've got a a big one that's relatively well-preserved, it's a 10-meter-wide-ish depression that has kind of berming on both sides. So there's very rarely any sort of hyper-formalized construction, so it's not like there's masonry edges or, or berming or, or full-on masonry construction that's framing them. Um, it's really just a depression with some sort of uh, berming or mounding on both sides. And they, they're relatively straight in comparison to other types of, of linear features that you might see. And these are deliberately constructed? They're not just accidental from people walking over the same place uh, repeatedly? I think they're a little bit of both, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which makes them really difficult to identify um, and also difficult to understand what they were used for, right? So most of the roads that you see across the entire landscape, you know, they were formally constructed and probably what occurred was the debris from where the roadway would be was moved and pushed to the edges, right? Mm-hmm. So that clearing activity created kind of the central lane of the road, and then all the debris was moved to the sides, and that kind of created the berming, which, um, you know, gives you the general representation of a road. But then continuous use of those probably further formalized the general morphology or characteristics of that feature. Yeah, these uh, this is so insane. I didn't really look at the roads that much when uh, when we were there. I didn't actually quite quite honestly think about it that much. But I've heard them referred to as the Chaco and Road Network and roads and stuff like that before. And I just thought maybe that's a regional thing why they're calling that because normally you hear of Native American trail systems and uh, and other things, but it's like, my God, I didn't realize they were up to 10 meters wide. I mean, that's like a haul road on a mine. <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 they're kind of ridiculously large. Yeah. Right? <laughs> for Un- um, Unnecessarily for, large. Right. And, and that was actually one of like the first interpretations about what they were used for was to answer the question of like, why would you, ne- why would you need a road that that's big, that is that large? Yeah. And so a couple of the first people... I think like Tom Wines and some others thought that, you know, they were, the roads were used for timber importation, right? So they, they were cutting timbers 
at like high altitude fir and Douglas trees and mm-hmm. like the San Juans up north that are in the Chuscas or down south towards the Zuni Mountains. They were cutting them there and then they were transporting them, you know, a really long way and then moving them to the canyon. So so the early interpretations were that they were carrying them kind of widthwise. And a lot of these beams were pretty big, you know, on the order of larger than five meters. So they were they needed a wide road to facilitate basically a bunch of people standing in line with each other, hoisting the beam up and walking it the entire distance. What questions was your research specifically trying to answer? Well, one, it was to say, um, after John Kander did a lot of his work, he kind of showed that in some of his models, the roads, the actual locations of roads don't fit with where we would assume people would be moving if they were trying to reduce the amount of time it took for move to point A to point B. So he was saying is pretty much the roads did something other than facilitate economic transportation of people or the things they were carrying. I didn't buy that so much. Um, not, I thought his research was really well designed and conducted, um, but kind of with advancements in how people are running these sorts of analyses, I thought it'd be nice to return to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we kind of redeveloped some algorithms that were produced to model caloric expenditure. Um, and so we built these algorithms to kind of simulate timber importation because I thought that was a convincing argument, right? It's like they probably weren't carrying foodstuffs or in large quantities back and forth, but we definitely know through some isotopic analyses that other folks have done that a lot of the timbers that are located in Chaco Canyon and were used for those big great houses mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. cut in those resource or procurement locations really far in the distance, right? So if you, if you got that, that's some evidence, right, that. I figured they had to be moving them in a slightly efficient way. So we kind of mm-hmm. built models to simulate it. So uh, these roadways, uh, if they're being used for transporting timbers and you have resource procurement areas, what's on the far end of the road at the opposite end from Chaco? Are there other communities? Are there other sites of some kind that you can identify as being the sources of these timbers? What are you looking for at that end? A little bit of both. So the North Road, which is probably the most famous of the Chaco Road system, it's super straight. It kind of aligns um, with cardinal directions in a really nice way, but it kind of extends from Pueblo Alto, which sits just above the edge of the canyon on the north side of Chaco Canyon, and goes all the way up through Pitts Canyon and kind of projects towards the San Juans and La Plata Mountains. And across you know, that entire system, there's five or six outliers. So there's other additional sites which are associated with Chaco. Um, at the very end of it is either it either ends at Chaco or at, at the mouth of Kutz Canyon or it ends um, at Salmon and Aztec. So at the very far end, kind of how I imagined it is, they were probably cutting timbers and then you would be leaving them for one or two years because once you fell a tree, you can actually let it dry and it reduces the weight of that by like 50% or something. Um, and so mm-hmm. there might have been either resource camps or there might even be um, maybe not like year-round habitations or, or pit structures or something up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the timbers were first brought towards, you know, the closest community out on the periphery. And then it was slowly kind of in a stage-wise movement brought towards the canyon. I was just taking a look at one of your maps here within the uh, within the research. One of your models that you used was called least cost modeling. And uh, mm-hmm. it totally makes sense. And I want to talk about some of these paths and how they lined up with projected road alignments and actual road alignments um, and the suggested road alignments based on the past. But first tell our audience, what is what is least cost modeling? How did you come up with these uh, 
with these equations that you used here and, and how does this, like what, what are the kind of inputs you use to get this to work? Mm -hmm. uh, so, well, least cost modeling has been, uh, I don't know, came out of ecologists or economists, but people a lot smarter than me developed these methods and all the <laughs> algorithms. Um, yeah. So least cost modeling basically takes a raster or a matrix data set, right, which has values for each cell. Um, mm -hmm. And then it multiplies that entire data set basically by a series of algorithms or inputs, um, which basically allows you to say, allows a computer to crunch all those numbers and say, what is the easiest way along a matrix to get from point A to point B. So where's the path with the least accrued cost? Um, and you can use different algorithms to simulate what people are trying to optimize. So most people use an uh, algorithm called Tobler's algorithm, which says is, is meant to be used in the case where you think people are trying to minimize the amount of time it takes to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, I thought that didn't, I mean, if you're carrying something super heavy, like we've all been out there either doing survey and you got a full pack on, Right. Half the time you're worried about time. The other half the time you're like, oh, my gosh, I feel exhausted. Right. I'm actually thinking in terms of like physical exhaustion. So for me, caloric expenditure, energy expenditure is equally as valid of a, a component or condition that people could be thinking about optimizing. Um, so mm -hmm. this uh, group of researchers in the late 70s built this thing or constructed this algorithm based off of army marching data. Uh, so they were basically capturing and uh, data about how much calories people were expending through using certain amounts of weight in their packs and how that changed when they were walking on different types of terrain and all sorts of things. So they have all these inputs. Um, and then kind of we went back through the literature and kind of made some estimates based off of um, a lot of different data points to, to recreate in the best we could for fitting that algorithm what it would be like to move a timber the size they are uh, from really far away to Chaco Canyon. And then what do you, uh, the, the modeling, and I take it it's, it's in GIS, right? What's the tool set that you use? Yeah, you can, you can do it in, in pretty much any sort of GIS out there. So a lot of the early ones were done in ArcGIS. Um, there's a lot of clear workflows you can do it. Um, you can also run it in R. Mm -hmm. which is super nice because it automates and there's a lot of people who um, some folks out there who have written the, the, the scripts really cleanly. And so you can, and, and they're out there on GitHub, which is super nice, but some folks out of BYU, one of the colleagues I work with, Kelsey Reese, um, they've all done a lot of really cool work with this stuff in R. So I did similar things and I've ran it in both R and ARC and it's kind of a trade off, whatever you could do it in Q as well, I guess. I mean, you'd have to mm -hmm. be really, you'd have to, I'd be a lot more familiar with the grass, but pretty much any GIS right. will handle it. Why is it important to to understand all this stuff? I mean, what, what's the real benefit here to to figuring out, you know, what the, what the best path for these roads were and, and correlating that to where they're at now? Right. You know, I asked myself that when I was first doing this project, because it's like, <laughs> it's super interesting and it's, you can tell awesome stories with archaeology, right? But and yeah. the grand scheme of things, how do you convince people that it's worth the money for like grants or whatever that <laughs> we should know why people were using roads in the past, right? Because <laughs> right? it's so, right. it's very right. ephemeral. I mean, really, in my opinion, 
the most important thing about it is really the understanding what the roads are is a really small component of understanding how this huge system operated in the past. Mm-hmm. Right. So if roads are really one of the best physical lines of evidence we have for how the outlier system is interacting with Chaco mm-hmm. Canyon, then we need to utilize and understand exactly how that system might have been used by people in the past to get an understanding of how they were physically interacting with the canyon and how social networks were probably constructed on top of that. And so if you know if you have an interpretation about whether that interaction is ritual, economic, or some other social mechanism, that's going to dramatically alter what you perceive the Chaco system to look like, and perhaps more importantly, why that system stopped being um, reified, right? Why did people all of a sudden stop building Chaco great houses? Well, that can only be answered if you know why people were building Chaco great houses in the first place and, and why they chose to identify uh, with these architectural traditions that emerged in Chaco Canyon. Uh, so it's a really small piece. When you mentioned the great houses and uh, the importation of this timber, uh, is there a particular time period that we're looking for? I mean, is it, uh, does it happen fairly quickly or is it something that persists persist through a long span of time? So, Great houses were built relatively rapidly um, in terms of there were, you know, construction. There were periods of like episodes of construction, specific traditions, which kind of accumulated into what a Chaco great house is, began in the ninth century and took a long time to become fully formalized. Um, but kind of the classic Chaco period is the middle 11th through the middle 12th period. And so in that hundred year span, whatever specifically Chaco traditions that did emerge in the canyon, all those architectural practices wrapped up and formalized in the construction of an actual great house. In that hundred year span, they started popping up everywhere. And then sometime between 1150 and maybe 1170, they stopped being built pretty much across the region. Hmm. So, hmm. yeah. So it was a long accumulation in some senses, but, but this rapid changes, certainly. Okay. Well, that's a good stopping point. Let's take this to break and we'll be back on the other side and continue talking to Sean Field about uh, the fascinating stuff at Chaco Canyon and around. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleo Radiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on price and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. 
Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 117. Today, we're talking to Sean Field about his GIS work uh, doing least cost analysis in and around Chaco Canyon. Uh, Sean, just before the break, you were talking about the uh, the the use of the roads and the construction of the great houses in Chaco. I was wondering if you could touch on a little bit about these roads. Uh, you know, earlier on, you were mentioning how they, how you thought they were formed, but do you think that they were formed specifically for transporting things for timbers for these great houses? Or do you think that they were roads that then got repurposed for the, uh, for the transportation of the timber? That is a great question. I present like so if you read the paper, there's mm -hmm. I kind of give an answer. I think I dance around it a bit, though, because I'm never really <laughs> sure where I sit on it. Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think there were certain roads, at least to me, seem like they were built or at least maintained for the purpose of bringing timbers to Chaco Canyon. You know, that includes the North Road, which goes you know up north to the La Plata's, it, includes the roads that go to the Chuscas and then maybe some of the, and it could include some that go to the south, but mainly those to the north and to the west. Whether they were constructed for it or not is a really tough question, right? So we have a very good idea of when timbers were being imported, um, right? Of course, we have a small sample size. There was something like almost, a, you know, 240,000 timbers or beams that were brought into Chaco Canyon within a couple hundred year period. And a very small amount of those have been sampled. So we don't exactly know how many were brought from large areas, but we do know we have like a really good temporal control on when timbers were cut, right? So we know when they would have needed to be imported, but we don't have good control on when the roads were built because there's very few diagnostic ceramics or other diagnostic materials that are associated with the road. So it's next to impossible to date these things. Even people who have excavated uh, certain great houses where there's a road that runs up really close to the great house, um, stratigraphy is not very good either. So because we don't really exactly know when the roads were built, it's almost impossible um, to answer that question. But some of the least cost modeling certainly indicates, you know, if you make it, when you're running the models, if you make it easier, even very at very small degrees easier to walk across the road surface. Um, you know, it, the models basically replicate exactly where the roads are. So you would assume that whether built for it or not, if people were trying to do this, this being moving timbers across a really long area, uh, mm -hmm. moving timbers across, you know, 70 kilometers, then they were doing it on the roads. I can I would suppose that it's a feedback loop on itself too. Once you have a road, right. it makes it more likely that you're going to use the road. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and there's not, and, you know, mathematically, the algorithm doesn't do, it's not really perfectly replicating moving these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the best way I think about it, have you guys seen, I'm sure there's a lot of people who have seen all of the Friends episodes, but there's one episode <laughs> where Ross and Rachel are carrying a couch and Ross is yelling like, pivot, he's like, pivot, pivot, oh right? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, pretty much how these algorithms work, right, is they're basically calculating slope between two <laughs> points of elevation, right? And then they're yeah. amplifying that through the algorithm that you put in, right? So if you're on the front end of a beam that you're carrying, right, you're and you're going downhill, you're carrying a lot more of the weight than the people above you, right? Yes. Um, so mathematically, this doesn't actually account for that at all. It also doesn't account for how tired you can get. So it's pretty much mathematically saying that, you know, the cost of 
traveling early in your movement is going to be as much as when you've been hiking all day, which isn't mm-hmm. true energetically at all, I'm sure. So there's a lot of there's a lot of minor flaws in that, uh, which I'm not currently equipped to handle. And you have to do a lot of other research just to, to answer those questions. Yeah, yeah. Now, I found it really interesting, actually, while you were addressing that in your article, because uh, you, you do say that they're not that it doesn't appear that the uh, timbers were dragged. So they would have been carried. Yeah. We don't have pack animals to carry them either. And it reminded me of something in my uh, in my dissertation where I was looking at travel along the valley floor in Yemen yeah. um, and trying to, you know, there it was um, it was camel traffic. And so that tends to space out about every 40 kilometers because that's about how far a camel caravan goes in a day. And so I was just trying to prove that, you know, the sites from the time period I was looking at were spaced roughly 40 kilometers apart. But I did it in uh, grass GIS. I did a a cost surface. Right. And what it showed was. Yeah, sure. The the most obvious is stick to the bottom of the of the wadi bottom, but it did show also that you could go straight up the uh, cliff faces, um, <laughs> up onto the uh, the high plateau that the uh, that the wadi cut into. And obviously that wasn't right. And that was because the model that I was using, uh, the R walk model in uh, right. in grass at the time, was modeled for human walking, not for camel caravans. And right. so I think yeah. it's I, I found it very interesting the way that you're addressing these questions about how many people are carrying one of these timbers and how long is the timber and such because those are all things that weren't immediately obvious to me when i when i first looked at the article but as i read that it uh it became very clear that those are real considerations yeah and it's it's hard to account for all of that and even you know methodologically right um there's a lot that you can do with manipulating the cost surface Mm -hmm. to kind of to to give some idea about how people would be to, to try to mimic some assumptions that you have about how people are actually acting in the past. Right. Right. So that, I mean, that's, I think your point on, well, and there's also scale the side of a cliff, right. This is a perfect example of that, right. Because (laughs) you could delimit that, but you know, how do you know that like if it was someone actually walking, that that wasn't some option that they considered. Well, and I didn't have uh, high resolution images. I was using uh, the shuttle SRTM stuff for my demos and, uh, and that wouldn't capture the places where there were actual roadways that were carved into the side of the cliffs that went from the, oh, uh, the wadi bottom up to the top. Right. Um, you're, you were working with much finer grained uh, dams than I had. Where did you get those? Those are just from the USGS. So there, you can just go through their map portal, which is super good. I think the entire continental United States now has 10 meter elevation. Everyone's flying LIDAR nowadays, right? So... There's over the American Southwest and across large parts of the continental United States. Uh, the government actually has tons of, I would say, closing in on some meter elevation data that's slowly being released through these, you know, portals and channels and stuff like that, which is super cool. And that's only going to, you know, make these types of analyses even more closely aligned with actual human decision making, I, I think. No, makes sense. Human decision making. You touch both in the introduction and then toward the conclusion of your article. You touch on uh, what's probably a touchy subject about the uh, about why these roads exist. Um, looking at more purely economic motivations. You know, looking at how much energy it's it, one expends to move timbers across the landscape and other. Uh, let's see. You quoted political, social, or ceremonial motivations. Right and. 
I, if I didn't, if I am misstating what you said here, but early on, it seemed that you were arguing that the economic ones for a variety of reasons can be uh, maybe more easily modeled with these tools. And so you should approach them first and then look at other, uh, at other reasons for, uh, for where things match or don't match. Did I get that right? And if so, or if not, could you expand on that, please? Yeah, no, I think generally you got it right is certainly is we should assess what the tools can allow us to assess first. Maybe not first, but we should make sure that we feel confident about that before we totally negate those types of models or those interpretations, right? You know, I think there's probably ways to model ceremonial and more socially complex types of movement, right? You can manipulate a cost surface raster in a way to where you could essentially put like a gravity model around all of the sites, Right. And you could multiply that on top of a cost surface raster that's just based off of slope. Mm -hmm. And that would, um, you know, that would technically draw the path towards a site. Right. So if you were saying like, okay, how would we expect people to get from point A to point B? But in moving from point A to point B, they're trying to see as many other people as possible. Right. And so you could do a lot that you could do that type of cost surface manipulation with all sorts of social variables. You would just have to be really confident in the assumptions and you would have to be clear about how you're mathematically trying to represent those social or human decisions, right? And that's that's something that's super important. And, um, you know, a lot of other people have been working in Chaco far longer than me and saying some really cool things is ideas that Chaco was a pilgrimage center or that people were, you know, going to Chaco for religious or ritual or ceremonial events and they were doing this on an episodic basis they also are indicating you know that their chaco great houses were built in places where they were meant to be seen so they were in areas of high visibility so you could even mm -hmm. take if you um if you want to roll off the ideas about visibility in the chaco world you could just run a view shed across all of the sites along a roadway corridor and then you could kind of basically multiply that on top of um, a cost surface raster, and then I'm sure that the path would be drawn towards areas of high, vis of high visibility as long as you manipulated it in the right way. Mm. I guess that, that brings us to a danger, right? With modeling, you know, you can get a model to do whatever you want to do as long as you're manipulating the parameters, right? So we have to be really careful that it's not, as you're, it's not circular, right? We're not just saying, gosh, I'd really like it to support this argument, so I'm going to build the parameters of the model in a way that the only outcome is going to be to support my analysis. So I think that's something that's always just attention in GIS and in a lot of the methods and technologies being used in archaeology nowadays. Yeah, certainly. Um, another like minor <laughs> economic point here, but um you know, back to that, uh, the camel caravans example, uh, mm -hmm. they typically stop at cities or caravanserais and, you know, and right. availability of water is a huge uh, driver of where those are located, uh, where those, those nodes are. Uh, was that in a factor in your study at all? It availability wasn't. Water, travel distances, those sorts of things? Water, water distances wasn't. That's, a, that's actually a really great point um, that I didn't think about at all. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no, I think that's brilliant. Uh, we thought about it only in terms of we pretty much we calculated not only from the resource procurement zones to the canyon, but also from site to next nearest site. Mm -hmm. So we kind of got to it and saying like, okay, people aren't going to be able to walk for four days on end, 
right? So they're going to want to kind of stop at places where they can sleep overnight and, and kind of rest a little bit. So I guess water's built into that because you would assume that there's available sustenance mm-hmm. in the places you're stopping, you know, but if you weren't doing that, then they're, they're, I mean, there's no doubt the distances are so great that you would need to factor in how you're going to eat and drink when, when doing these sort of activities. So that's, that's really clever. Hmm. Uh, how about seasonality? Do you have any, uh, any input into how seasonality would have affected these or if, um, or if these activities happened in, during particular seasons and not others? The, the best thing we could do for that would be looking at some of the early wood and late wood and act- of the, the timber samples themselves. Oh, of course, yeah. But that, that's only going to give us an idea about when the tree was cut, right? Um, so we don't really know exactly how much time was mm. taken up between when it was cut, how long it was dry rested, and then how long it um, until it was actually imported. Um, so it's it's really tough to say. I would assume, you know, there there's certain things where if we accept the notion that they were doing it optimally and they were trying to preserve as much energy as possible, you know, moving in cold months where there's not snow would make the most sense, right? Because in a lot of these arid environments, you, it's easier to walk on non-compact earth if it's slightly harder. There's a little bit of moisture and that moisture is really cold because uh, it makes a compact surface versus you're not going to want to walk in the rain because that's miserable and you're not going to walk when there's snow but that would tell, require tell that to archaeologists <laughs> that's exactly right oh man chris's field uh, um crm archaeologist comes out there right, yeah. <laughs> you know, walk in the snow my ass i'll tell you what <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it does make you wonder how our, our, our procedures and things that we're leaving today will be interpreted in 2000 years, you know, and, uh, if, if we're gone from this planet, like looking at, looking at these Chaco and roads and you're doing these, these analyses to say, well, what is the, I mean, least cost analysis says it all right there. You know, what is the least amount of effort, you know, it takes right. to get from here to there? What, what path is the best, but it, then take a look at one of our, housing developments with windy curvy roads that are put there on purpose <laughs> just yeah, because right. it looks prettier yeah. than a straight road, you know? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's, to- there's so yeah. many other components that go into decision-making, right. Sure. Then beyond, we just want to do it. And, and, you know, there was something I, I saw a study that this architectural group, uh, they were on a, they were hired by a college to put in like concrete walkways mm-hmm. um, across the campus. Right. And so what they did is actually they took a six month period where they just didn't do anything and they watched where people were going themselves. And then Mm -hmm. they put the pathways there to kind of like only put concrete where they knew people were already walking. Right. Mm -hmm. And something they struggled with is they saw that where people were walking changed across time, across seasons. It was dependent on, you know, how many people were in each dorm how many classes they had, what the makeup of mm-hmm. was the majors and minors and all that sort of stuff. Right. And it's like, you know, how, how do you handle that <laughs> controlling for all of that nuance yeah. a thousand years ago? Right. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, we are just about out of time here, Sean, where are you going from here? What are you studying next? Uh, so I'm working in Mesa Verde. So up in Mesa Verde nice. National Park. So I'm getting my, hopefully getting my doctorate. I actually just finished my comprehensive exams. So oh, that congrats. Was, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Happy to never have to do that again. Oh, yeah. Um, 
but I'm working up on a possible Chaco outlier up in Mesa Verde National Park called Farview with uh, Dr. Donna Gowacki. And so we're kind of figuring out and trying to to see uh, what Chaco traditions were doing up there, white people who have kind of a unique history themselves for picking up on Chaco ideas, implementing them, um, and how that also ties in with um, climate variability and other unique community community dynamics, which are important up in the Northern San Juan. So, Cool. And do you plan to apply other uh, GIS techniques to this? Are you done with uh, LCA for now, or is it something you're going to revisit? I might might revisit some LCA. The GIS stuff that I do, a lot of it will be, um, you know, we're going to be using a lot of remote sensing data and stuff like that. Um, We'll do some hydrology analyses, but I'd also, we're going to do a lot of spatial and cluster analyses to figure out how residential structures are clustering or disaggregating across time because they, um, you know, there is some relationship between social distance and spatial distance, right? So mm-hmm. going to hopefully develop a series of analytical tools to figure out if there's times when the aggregation or disaggregation is severe enough that we can consider it, you know, a unique shift in settlement strategy and then correlate those with unique shifts in climatic conditions to, to see if we can tease out some of the relationship between, you know, humans over a long span of time and the climate that they're situated in. Um, so hopefully, yeah, it'll be super GIS dependent. Cool. But, we have to come back right. on when you have some, uh, some new uh, results to show us. Oh yeah, I'd love to. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat away and, and blabber on about all things archaeology. <laughs> so thank you. No, nice. that's very interesting. Nice. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Sean. And yeah, when you uh, have more stuff that you want to come on and talk about, like this Mr. Verde work or, or anything else, then please reach out and we'll, we'll get you back on the show. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Take care. Good luck. We'll take our final break now and Paul and I will come back for our app of the day segment back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast. 117 is the episode, and this is the App of the Day segment. And I'm going to just go ahead and start here with the third in a series from a company called Two Steps Beyond. It's a couple I've been following on YouTube with their boat and RV travels, but they're also app developers. And they've got another great app, and you can get all three of these as a download um, from Apple. I know that. I think they're individually available on Google Play. But you should find a link in the show notes to their page, which will link to either the App Store one or the Google Play one. But this one's basically um, just what it says, public lands which is really kind of cool. It's a really high res map and it shows you, um, you can click up in the gear icon and you can uncheck everything. Everything's checked automatically and they've got everything from BLM, forest service, park service, um, national monuments, uh, army Corps land, fish and wildlife, um, Bureau reclamation, everybody here. And, uh, you can uncheck these and just see the ones you want to see. Um, you can also go to the websites for these various agencies and, uh, to be honest, that's basically it. They've got satellite uh, standard view, which is just a, you know, regular kind of, it's, you know, basic street map kind of thing with the overlays and then uh, satellite view. So you can overlay that uh, and then basic, which is basically just really pulls away all the extras from the map and just kind of shows you the areas. And then you can 
hide the overlays if you want, if it's getting in the way and you can see where you're at and what you're looking at here and then turn the overlay back on. Uh, and then of course it's got a little dot showing you exactly where you're at in relation to all of this. Um, it's got a search function too, and I haven't really played with that too much, but it's, uh, I know when you're out here in the West, man, just trying to figure out whose land you're on sometimes. I mean, if you're in Nevada, you can make a pretty darn good guess that you're on BLM land, <laughs> but not always. And the weird thing is if you want to know, like if you're in forest service land, the, their forest service land boundaries are really fuzzy. They're really broad. And you might think, man, I passed through the Toyabe national forest like a few days ago or a few hours ago. Am I still in it? I didn't see a sign. And you might be surprised because you're like, there's literally no trees around me anymore. Am I in the national forest? And yep, sure enough, you are in the national forest still. So because their land, their land extends out beyond the tree line. Of course, I don't know. I don't know how they decide where that goes, but uh, it's an interesting thing to see anyway. So, um, another thing that shows, uh, just kind of by not showing it, because <laughs> it's not an overlay, but uh, military land. There's a lot of military land in Nevada, and those are the big white spots that don't show up as anything. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like this, the sea of orange BLM land, and then the white spots where it's all military. <laughs> So, <laughs> Never um, mind. Nothing yeah. to see here, folks. Move along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the perfect thing they could have chosen to represent that too, is not representing it. <laughs> uh, so that's pretty much it. Um, I think I got this app and then the other two that I talked about, uh, which was one was called coverage and the other one was called uh, state lines. I'm pretty sure I paid $8.99 for all three of them. As a package, I think that was a, a little bit of a deal. Otherwise, I think they're two, three bucks a piece. And again, this is not some big app conglomerate. This is literally two people working out of their boat and RV. They've been digital nomads since about 2006. And they created apps that that they wanted to use um, and, and the people they know wanted to use. And I can wholeheartedly support that. I had no problem throwing them a few bucks for these apps just to, just to keep all that going. Because not only are they throwing these apps together that they want to use, but they're actually really well done. They're thought out. They're not overcomplicated. They do exactly what they need to do and nothing more. You know, there's no feature creep where they're just like, let's add this, let's add that. Nope. It does exactly what it says. <laughs> so, and in some ways I appreciate that. So all right. I think that's all I've got. The link for that is in the show notes. And next week as a preview or next time, I'm going to talk about their website actually. And it's called the Mobile Internet Resource Center. So go check that out. But I'll talk about that in more in depth next time out. So Paul, what do you got? Okay. So I've got another one that's by a small shop. Uh, it's called Just Six Weeks. It's available for iOS and Android um, for free uh, with some ads and some limitations or $2.99 for the quote unquote pro version. The app developer is Alexander Lomakin. He doesn't have a website that I've been able to find, uh, but the, uh, the app is available on Google Play and Apple App Store. And uh, what this is, is a workout app. And the reason why I downloaded this one was a few weeks back, uh, one of my coworkers was, uh, oh, I, you know, in the middle of something, uh, an alarm went off and he said, oh, whoops, I got I to gotta do my push-ups. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I got this app and, uh, and it's getting me to do 100 push-ups over the course of however long he had it set for. Um, mm -hmm. You know, not at once, but 100 push-ups in a day. 
And that's what yeah. he was going to. And he, you know, he is a very avid user of different apps and things. So uh, after a couple times of that interruption, you know, over the course of a week, I decided to go take a look because, you know, I could probably use doing some pushups myself. Uh, and what I realized was there's a whole bunch of apps like this. And so I picked just six weeks because based off of the screenshots, it looked like it was pretty good. It was reasonably well rated. Uh, the one that he was using was a little confusing because there were two that had the exact same name and the exact same icon and the exact same screenshots in the app store. Um, and it just didn't make sense which one one would choose. And so what it is, is again, a kind of a one trick pony app. Uh, the, the free version just gives you push-ups, though uh, if you pay for it, you can also get, uh, let's see, sit-ups, bench dips, squats, plank, pull-ups, or dips. And so it uh, calibrates you, it has you do um, a number of push-ups in one go, uh, and then it builds out a, a schedule for you and gives you reminders. Uh, and, you know, it's not <laughs> to single out this particular app. It seems totally fine. Um, it's just that it was interesting to me that these, uh, these exercise ones have become such a big thing, that there were so many of them available on the App Store. I shouldn't have been surprised because... Uh, a few years ago, there was the seven-minute workout ones. I think that was started by Johnson and Johnson. Uh, so yeah. the Johnson and Johnson one is one I still have on my uh, my phone. And what the reason why I wanted to talk about this is, you know, I'm sure that this app is just fine. Um, I'm probably won't be using it myself because I absolutely hate working out. Um, <laughs> I like exercise. I hate working out. It's it's weird. It's me. Um, that's why I have this seven minute workout that I never look at and haven't used other than uh -huh. for a couple months when I first got it. But uh, Johnson and Johnson, at least I had some uh, ability to believe that there was some hard science behind what they had done. This other one, you know, the guy might be great. He might be extremely smart. He might even have, uh, you know, a background in sports medicine or something, but I don't really know. And I certainly don't know it across mm -hmm. all the dozens of different push-up apps that I saw. And that just brings up the question to me is that um, when I look at these things, my default is, oh, it says it's scientifically tested by yeah. whom and how yeah. and when. <laughs> uh, I don't actually know the answers to any of those questions. So, um, you know, if you're looking at these, look at them, but uh, maybe carry that little uh, caveat around that uh, you might not necessarily get what's advertised on the tin. Yeah, you might not. So uh, I just downloaded this and I'm interested to see, and I'll report back later. Uh, I'll be interested to see when I do my push-ups to, to get my workout plan. If the app just like crashes and fails and says, it's going to take you way longer than six weeks to get to a hundred push-ups a day. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I found odd about it when I first did my, uh, my push-ups was that I couldn't figure out how to put the number. There was a, a circle with a zero in it. And I'm like, well, I definitely did mm -hmm. more than zero. Um, but I couldn't like tap anything. And then it turned out that they had a, a strange interface. It was kind of, um, you know, like a picker where you scroll oh, through a list it. or something, but it was horizontal. And so I had to scroll yeah. off to the right to about 86 or whatever I did. Um, yeah. yeah, not really 86. Not really 86. Uh, less than that. <laughs> so that might was be a little weird. But other than that, the uh, <laughs> no, I did more than six. <laughs> I did more than eight. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that, so that was a little yeah. weird. And uh, we'll see if I continue to use it uh, as we go forward, if I find yeah. other you know, interface oddities about this one. But uh, everything else seems really straightforward. You know, it's got graphing. It's got the alarms. Uh, you can set custom alarms. 
it shows you in little tiles once it's done that first assessment what you're going to do so it told me when i finished with the uh, the initial set it said to give myself two or three days break before i actually start in on it i don't think i'm going to need to go three days but uh and then it says week one day one and uh and it's got me eight nine ten eight and six plus and i can start that and then week Nice. one day two which would be a couple of days after that and so on and so it's broken down into nice tabs that i can uh, that i can flip through uh so i know what to expect coming up uh week by week uh, so okay. yeah we'll uh maybe report back to see if uh, if this actually gets me doing push-ups well i will tell you what six weeks from now is three episodes from now so on episode 120 if you made 100 push-ups a day by then we'll just put up a picture of your bicep with no explanation and uh only only, uh, you know, dedicated listeners to the Archaeotech podcast will know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to look and say, uh, this guy's really scrawny. That's one of the reasons why I don't like working out because my upper body does not build muscle. Uh, never has. I can be strong, nice. but not muscular. And so it's, uh, it's a little, uh, after a bit, yeah. it gets a little depressing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's enough for this time. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of interviews actually scheduled. So that's going to be great. Yeah, Next yeah, time yeah. we're going to Mesa Verde. Sean was talking about that. It's actually one of his colleagues that we're going to be talking about or talking to. So tune in for that next time. And then we've got a, a few more good episodes all the way out into January that we're really looking forward to. So if you're interested in talking to us about your research or you know somebody that would be a great interview subject for us, then reach out. Our contact info is in the show notes. Uh, if you've got something to write down now, it's just chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com is a good start. Or if you happen to be looking at the page for this on the web over on the right side in the column, there's a little link that says schedule an interview. Again, we're out to end of January, I think right now. So you know, you got some time to, to think about it and plan. But yeah, we're always looking for, for new interviews. So, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks, Chris. Yep. And we'll see everybody next time. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Oh.